We're finally at that place in our study of the gospel according to Luke, where we are at the crucifixion of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, you can look at Luke 23. We'll look at the second part of Luke 23 this morning. What a complex thing it is. What an awful thing it is. We're talking about the crucifixion of the Messiah. It doesn't get any more awful uh, than that reality. The Messiah comes, proves himself to be the Messiah, the promised one of God, come to save his people from their sins, and the people kill him. Grossly so. They crucify him. And yet, it's to us a wonderful thing. Because of what it means. Isn't it interesting that the historical act is terrible and it doesn't get more horrific. But because of what it means, you see, interpretation really does matter. Because of what it means and its significance, we find it to be a great thing. We find it to be wonderful because we have forgiveness because of its intent, because of what it means. And so, uh, no doubt there'll be mixed emotions as we read through our passage and consider it. Some things you can be looking for as we do, you can be looking for the different people and the, the different perspectives that they have. Luke draws attention to that. Uh, not only their perspectives, Luke draws attention to the different responses from the different people. And certainly as we work our way through it, we'll take time and talk about what it means because we know what it means. And so we'll take time to talk about what it means, uh, not just for those people, but for what it means to everyone who would ever believe. And so let's begin now working our way through this crucifixion uh, text beginning in verse 26, if you join me there. And as they led him away, we've learned from chapter 22, he's exhausted from beatings and turmoil. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And I won't stop every time, but we do need to make sure from the beginning we kind of see what's going on. Here is this innocent bystander, wink, wink. Here is this innocent bystander, Simon from Cyrene. He's no doubt in, in Jerusalem because it's Passover. And so here he is as a Jew. And here he just happens to be there again, innocent bystander. And what does he have to do? He has to carry uh, this humiliation stick. This, this awful humiliating thing that's only for, for someone who's a sinner. Isn't it interesting? In reality, from a spiritual perspective, Simon should be carrying the cross. And Jesus should have nothing to do with the cross. Whether it's intended or not, it's rather intriguing to see this kind of substitution. We are going to have the just, Jesus, for the unjust. Who deserves to carry the cross? Well, actually, Simon deserves to carry the cross, not Jesus. But at, G at this point in time, Jesus is so beaten down that they enlist this passerby, passerbyer. Then verse 27 says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Seems rather commendable, right? So the people are following and the women, these are, you know, stereotypical church ladies um, before the church starts. 
And what are they doing? Well, they're doing what you should do when something like this is happening. They're, they're, they're mourning and they're lamenting for him. Verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, using that purposely uh, as representatives of Jerusalem. I'm addressing Jerusalem here. As you're the mourners of Jerusalem, I'm addressing Jerusalem in you. Daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And that's where you go, what? Seems pretty out of place. It would seem that Jesus would affirm the cute little church ladies for doing something commendable. And he says, stop. Don't weep for me, don't mourn for me, but mourn for yourselves, for Israel, and for your children. Shocking. This is why interpretation of facts are so important. So verse 29 says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. It's going to be exact opposite of what you'd think. Children are a great blessing. Children are wonderful. And we want big families, especially in that kind of culture. They're going to really think that blessings from God, this has happened. And Jesus says, you should stop crying for me and what's going to happen to me and cry for yourselves and what's going to happen to you because it's going to be so upside down your world that people are going to wish they didn't even have any kids to care for. It's going to be that awful, that horrendous. Then verse 30 says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. Probably referencing from Hosea, in Hosea chapter 10, Israel is so into idolatry and false idol worship that this is the pronouncement that comes there, where uh, they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills fall on us, because there's chastisement from God. This is so interesting to think about. Jesus earlier, a chapter or two earlier, talked about the the coming destruction of Jerusalem, right? That's no doubt what he's talking about. 70 AD, it happens. The Romans destroy the temple. They conquer. they, 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 They annihilate the city. It's horrendous. It's horrific. It's awful. From what we know historically, extra-biblical sources, not even Christian sources, and according to some accounts, people are even eating people's children. It's that kind of famine condition. If that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here, people will wish they didn't have any children. I don't know. We don't know. But it's going to be awful for you, is what Jesus is saying. It's pretty unsettling. It's pretty bizarre in one sense. I like what Phil Riken said about this in his commentary. Many people believe that Good Friday is a day when they should feel sad that Jesus died. and Therefore, therefore try to get themselves into a right emotional state to grieve his crucifixion. But Jesus does not need our sympathies. He did not need them when he was going to die. And he certainly does not need them now that his sufferings are over. Don't weep for me. But weep for yourselves. Riken goes on to say, I think this is worth it. 
The person truly to be pitied is not the Savior who died for sinners, but the sinners who die in their own sins and therefore fall under the judgment of God. See, what happens there physically to Jerusalem is a good picture of what happens when you reject Jesus, which they are doing. And there's physical destruction. Well, guess what? Weep for yourself. Because of what's going to happen to you if you don't trust in the crucified Savior. That's, that's the message. And again, how many, it is sad that Jesus died. Don't, don't get anybody wrong. It's, it's horrendous and horrific. It's the greatest act of injustice ever known to humanity or ever will be known to humanity. But let's not be like the, oh, isn't that sad? That's too bad that that happened to him and, and somehow get ourselves emotionally worked up that Jesus died. If we're doing so from the perspective of not having embraced him as substitutionary savior, Jesus would say to you instead, you should be weeping for yourself. I don't know about you, but I just, when I think of the crucifixion of Jesus, I don't know if I just skip over these parts or what. And you're like, this is interesting. Verse 31 says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And if you know what that means, I'd love for you to help me. From what we do, from what I read, it's a, it was a common proverb, apparently. It seems as if Jesus is comparing himself to, to the green, healthy, alive one, and Israel to the dead wood. Roman judgment, Roman judgment, perhaps. You see what's happening to me? You wait, wait till you see what they do to you. Deadwood. Maybe it has more to do with God's judgment. I'm not sure. Again, I'll quote Phil Riken one more time. I like the way he summarized it. If the innocent Jesus suffered like this, what will be the fate of the guilty? That seems to fit the context. If the innocent Jesus suffers like this, what's it going to be like for you who are guilty? It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. Verse 32 says, transitioning now, moving on. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Which is a play right out of the playbook of Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's exactly what's happening. The plan is unfolding. Verse 33 says, And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, or Calvary, or Golgotha, there, just outside the city, just outside the city to the north, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
It's kind of strange that we just read over it. And they crucified Him. It's strange that we skipped, skipped over it because of what it means. We're going to talk later a bit about what it means. They crucified Him. The horrendous death. The death not just for criminals, but for the worst, most heinous criminals. The kind you want to make an example out of. With criminals. They, they, they crucified Him. And Jesus says to people who crucify Him, regarding people who crucify Him, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Something unique and extraordinary is going on. All kinds of things are written about what this means. Let's at least start by, by acknowledging this is extraordinary. Jesus has already shown that He has the power to do Radical and amazing things. To cast out demons. To heal. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to do all kinds of things. Certainly he would have the power to wipe out all of these guys. And he says, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. So we see something of His compassion. We see something of His mercy. We see something extraordinary, actually. The, the ultimate, if you will. This is being done to Him, and how does He respond? Now, maybe it means forgiveness in a generic kind of sense. So we understand the demeanor and disposition of Jesus. Maybe that's what He's getting at. We know it doesn't mean forgive all of these people and don't hold any of this against them. Because Jesus has already made it clear that God, through His providence, through Rome, has already locked and loaded. And it's going to be horrific and terrible for them. doesn't look like they're forgiven. And now, all of a sudden, the theologians start a feeding frenzy. Right? Because you think, I wasn't thinking about that before. So what is it? What about when uh, Peter, who's really no better than Judas... The difference is, we already saw Jesus prays for Peter, and that's how he can be sure that he will remain steadfast amidst compromises. You get the idea that when Jesus says, forgive them, it's not just in a generic sense. I don't know for sure. But it's rather interesting to think about. One great helpful hint is in Acts chapter 6. I'll read it. In verse 7. And the word, this is later on. Luke is still the historian writing, but the, the second volume of his two volume edition. When the church is birthed, post resurrection, post ascension, listen to this. And the word of God continued to increase, the gospel continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe he is speaking effectually. Maybe it's more generic, I'm not sure. But there are people who are there present who will be personally, savingly 
forgiven. Even some of the leaders. I tend to think that's more what's in view there. I'm more of the school that says, uh, if Jesus would not have said to Lazarus when he raised him from the dead, Lazarus, come forth. Every dead person would have been raised. Because he doesn't just say things. He says things powerfully and effectually. Like with Peter. I prayed for you, Peter. It's effective. It's as good as done. But I don't want to start a church split over it. You can believe that Jesus' requests aren't effectual, and I'll believe they're effectual. (laughs) If nothing else, let me nudge you lovingly and to think a bit more serious about when Jesus says things, what is, his, what is his intent? If his intent was that everyone would be forgiven, I would suggest to you everyone would be forgiven. Isaiah 53, verse 12, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. Again, it's that substitutionary atonement passage that we see coming true before our very eyes. He's even making intercession for the transgressors. What a great and amazing Savior he is. Then as we move to verse 34, we can see just how clueless they were. In verse 34, and they cast lots to divide his garments. They, they, they're just treating him like they treated other criminals. Let's divide up his clothes. He has nothing left but the clothes on his back, and so let's divide those up. Let's make a game out of it. Reminiscent of Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Verse 35, and the people stood by, watching. Now I have to interject just for a second there, because I know more than is actually there. In Acts chapter 2, we learn something about this passage. We learn that these, the people standing, watching, aren't exactly innocent. And the people stood by, watching. They're the ones that in chapter 23, verses 21 and 23, are are demanding his death. Kill him. Well, now they're not as engaged, but they're the same people. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, mocking, uh, deriding, making fun of, blaspheming. Psalm 22, verse 7, All who seek, seek me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Isn't it interesting? These are the ones who were convincing all the people that they're waiting for Messiah. The great messianic hope. He will be delivered. When He comes, get ready. And the leaders of the whole movement meet Him face to face with objective proof and all they do is mock Him. What a picture of the human heart. In Mark's gospel account, in verse 32 of chapter 15, 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. If He would just come down, then we would believe. And we know enough to know, no, they wouldn't. And by the way, He'll be raised from the dead and they won't. Some will, actually. But He's already done enough stuff for them to believe. The human heart is the biggest problem, not objective evidences. We fall into the trap of believing people like these leaders. If I just saw it with my own eyes, then I would. And as Christians, we haven't read our Bibles very closely when we believe them. Apart from the work of God in someone's heart, no, they won't. You can give them all the objective evidences in the world and 2 plus 2 is still 17. It's just how perverse and how corrupt our perspective is on things. If Jesus would have come... Let me ask you this. If Jesus would have come down from the cross right then and there, what would they have done? They would have put Him back up there is what they would have done. Everything has us to come to that kind of conclusion. It's terrible. It's why Jesus' death is so important. It's why it's so necessary. It's why it's so great. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him. So other perspectives. Now we've got the people, we've got the ladies, we've got the officials, religious officials, the soldiers. Now the Roman soldiers, Gentiles, also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Context here seems to be as as an act of mocking. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. We know that more is written if we look at the other gospel accounts, but Luke is putting an emphasis on it, and he's just taking one of the statements... Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And look how they're treating him. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Now we have a criminal perspective. Are you not the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior? Save yourself and us. According to other gospel accounts, both criminals are at him. Both criminals are against him. Okay? Do something. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, not Jesus, but the other criminal. This is what's always so fascinating, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And and we indeed justly, isn't it amazing? We have criminals acknowledging guilt. And, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Yeah, not, not through the mouth of babes. <laughs> Th- through the mouth of the worst kind of criminals. Jesus is innocent. We're guilty. He's spot on. He's just, he's just right on. 
And then verse 42 says, this gets super interesting. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you. So earnestly, as earnest can be, earnestly, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Without question, what you ask, I'm going to give you. Jesus never would have had to say truly, by the way. Earnestly. But when he does, it kind of makes our ears perk up. Make no mistake about it. It's going to happen. My question to you now is, how could this be? How could Jesus say to the thief on the cross, the, thie uh, the thieves on the crosses, so Rome crucified countless people. There weren't three people crucified. Jesus isn't the only one crucified. Okay? But it's for people who are anti-government, people who do serious crime, um, maybe murder involving insurrection. It's for the people they really want to make a point uh, out of. How could this guy who's an admitted bad guy be promised paradise. It's kind of like, well, I, I don't know. How could he be? He's not inherently good. Uh, he hasn't had time to have his good outweigh his bad. Uh, he hasn't had time for penance. Jesus didn't build in a purgatory clause. And you know there's only one answer, right? The only way this could be possible is if it's given to him. The only way it's possible is if someone else, namely Jesus, grants it to him. And by the way, it still couldn't be. Jesus couldn't just say, you're in. It's a pretty big, bold statement. I mean, I'm, I'm, on, I'm walking on a pretty thin branch for me to say Jesus could or Jesus couldn't. We know enough about Jesus. We know enough from the Bible. We know enough about God. We know enough about His law. We know enough about ourselves. Jesus couldn't just say paradise if it were not for Jesus' substitutionary work. Right? Makes sense? Because it would be an act of injustice. It would be wrong. To say that wrong people are to be treated like they're right. But Jesus comes here so that he voluntarily can pay the price for everyone who would ever believe, including this believing thief. And now all of a sudden we have hope. We say, That's, this, well, this is great. What a savior this Jesus is. He just says it's, it, it's true and it is. Well, yeah, because it has to do with what he does. This is awesome. This is extraordinary. Truly, I say to you today, it's what Jesus will do for him. And I don't want to get too far off track, but we, we have such a hard time with bad people becoming Christians. 
Because we have no idea who Christ is and what He came to do. And we have no idea who we are. Right? So don't get mad at your friends who don't understand it. But try to help them. But maybe I I would venture to say that, I don't know, I hate to say always and never, most and least, I'm sure you know many people who think heaven is for good people. Like them. What we have to understand is the substitutionary work of Jesus and it's the just, the righteous, the good, if you will, for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You know, as we call it the great exchange. We know the meaning of the cross. Let's not pretend we're the thieves on the crosses. Okay? I'm not going to not going to try to go there. But we're guilty. This man's greatest crime was not being anti-Rome or murdering someone as bad as that is. His greatest crime is the great crime we all commit. We don't treat the king of the universe like he's the king of the universe. We're all insurrectionists, if you will. We don't love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't love fellow image bearers. So we just have to remember that, and we have to, we have to get good at explaining that and understanding that ourselves and perhaps doing so with a smile on our face <laughs> because we're thankful that we've experienced this. But the gospel is the good news regarding Jesus and what He's done. He goes to the cross voluntarily he's in charge I like to say he's so in charge in the gospel according to Luke not to mention Matthew Mark and John he's so in charge it's not even funny it's unfolding because there's a plan of redemption for him the good one for us the bad ones which is good news for people like us Now we see something of the divine response in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Pretty simple. Darkness when it shouldn't be dark. What a coincidence, you know. Did God do this providentially? Did He do it miraculously? Is it because there was some kind of sandstorm? Blah, blah, blah. I don't care. It's like, you know, when, when liberal commentators say, well, you know, isn't, you know, we, what well, we know when they crossed the Red Sea, it actually was only knee deep. And uh, so we know that it wasn't really a miracle. It was just kind of in their minds. And I love the retort. I love the response. So isn't it an amazing miracle that that entire army drowned in knee-deep water. You know. However, 
it happened. God can use, you know, natural means, supernaturally. But at the right time and the right place when this happens and something else supernatural is going to happen, it's dark. They're going to say, oh, this is not good. And by the way, darkness is not associated with good things. So here it is, dark. Not only that, you have the curtain torn in the temple. God's way of saying, here's the, the elaborate, fancy, ornate, pricey curtain. Curtain of separation. And what does God do? God has it torn. Even extra-biblical non-Christian sources talk about the tearing of the curtain. Historically, there it is, torn. And you say, seems like heaven is speaking here. This is, this is terrible, what's going on here. It's terrible, but it's also wonderful in another sense. If the curtain is torn, now we don't go access through the priests, through the temple. Now we're starting to connect more dots. Jesus said he's the temple. You go through him. And now everything changes. From here on out, from that moment in time, you know, the sign outside of the temple should say closed for business. It's over. Cool historical landmark. As I said a few weeks ago, you know, t take the elementary kids on, on tours there. Line them up in first century buses. As if. Here's how it used to be. And it was all foreshadowing, to use the fancy word, typifying what was to come. Our great God gave us pictures, previews. And it all became reality when Jesus came. That's how it should be. It is the wrong thing ever after. Because it's not how you get to God. And heaven makes it clear here for us. So you can look at it negatively. You can look at it positively. God says no more. Only to have human beings say, oh yes we will. Positively, Jesus opens the door to paradise. Okay, how about verse 46? Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The only thing I want to say is, notice he's in control. Was Jesus murdered? Trick question, right? He was murdered, but he wasn't murdered. When you read the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you see this is complex, right? Human accountability for murder. But he didn't have his life taken. He gave his life. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's been in control throughout the historical account. He's in control now. He commits his spirit to his father. And having said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, now when the centurion, this Roman soldier, saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And we know it's not just in a generic sense. Mark's account elaborates, Mark 15, 39. 
Truly this man was the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. Here we've got a, a, a centurion. And we don't really know how that works. A Roman centurion. Well, he's a Roman centurion who used to be a Jew. or I mean, exactly how that works, I don't know. But he seems more likely to take him as a Gentile. Just a, a raw Gentile. Maybe not. I don't know. But, but he's saying, look, he's the one. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is already starting to unfold for us. Preview of what's about to come. How about verse 48? And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That's interesting. A good and righteous man. Now remember, always read your Bible in context. A righteous man, relatively speaking. Right? Old and New Testament would have us to know no one is righteous. Genuinely, inherently speaking. But he's a God-fearer. He's a believer. Okay? He's a good and righteous man. 51, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. He, he was actually doing what they all said they were doing. He, he's, he's a remnant guy. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Risky move. Verse 53, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women, so they have to do this before Sabbath comes, so they have to wait till after. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Godly Jews. And you say, what's the significance of that? Historical details, I would say. He's careful enough at times when he thinks he needs to be because he's writing for someone, giving the details, according to chapter 1, to describe what's going on. These aren't events that happen in people's hearts. It's not how... Certain people saw things in a dream. He's giving historical details, and this is how it happened. And this is how it happened. And this is how it happened. And he's getting us ready so that we see and understand that when he's raised from the dead, this is how it happened. Now let me remind you before we go of what all of this means. I know what this means. For me to say it means whatever you want it to mean would be arrogant and deceptive. I know what this means. And you know what it means if you have a Bible. Two New Testament passages that interpret it for us. One from Jesus, one from His beloved close disciple John. Greater love has no one 
than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What this means is, we've just witnessed the greatest act of love ever. And not only because it would inspire love in us, though it does, but because it's love for us, that he would lay his life down for his friends. Now one other passage. That was John fifteen thirteen. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction or the atonement or the propitiation for our sins. What does it mean? It means that God loved us when we weren't lovely. Not that we love God and He rewarded us, but that He loved us is what it means and He gave His Son for us. Substitution, again, it's so awesome and amazing and gracious so that He, Jesus, might be the propitiation for our sins. The word of the day is propitiation because it's the meaning word. Satisfaction. Atonement. But just so you know, it's against the backdrop of anger and wrath and judgment. You want to understand love, the love of God? Well, He's the God who needs to be propitiated. He's the God who needs to have atonement made. And, and so He shows His love for us by actually, ha, how about this, doing that, accomplishing that for us. So that's why we, we've said through the centuries, the cross is where the just wrath and righteous judgment of God and the love of God meet. It's where they kiss. It's where justice and love embrace. God is both. Righteous, holy, just. The one who condemns righteously. But He also cares and is gracious and He provides His own Son. And that's why I can say to you that God loves you enough to give His Son for you. And there's no greater love. It really is extraordinary. And it really is awesome. Don't weep for Jesus. He's the victor. The loving, gracious victor. But we would all want to weep for you. If you don't embrace Him by faith, by trust because you'll have to propitiate your own sin for your own sins because a just God requires it don't do that by God's grace don't do that next week it's resurrection but the crucifixion is good news too
Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. I love being able to learn about these things. I love being able to share these things, and so many others here do as well. And yet, we, we're just beginning. We're just scratching the surface, no doubt. But thank you that you do interpret these things for us, and we're not left in the dark to make up our own meanings. Uh, we can know what this means. Thank you that you don't hold our rebellion against us um, if we're those who are resting in Jesus. And Lord, may, may everyone here today be resting in Jesus and, and not in themselves. Thank you for your grace and for your kindness. Uh, allow these things, these great, grand, eternal realities to put the, the rest of our life in perspective. Um, as we are strangers and aliens suffering many things, uh, thank you that Victory is sure in the ultimate sense in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.